Last Wednesday was Valentine's Day, and uh, I'm not going to get into the whole uh, story about it. Uh, I'm not going to get into all of it because you, you know that it's Valentine's Day. But you may or may not know that Valentine's Day is actually named after a Christian martyr, a priest who ministered to persecuted Christians in the third century. Now, it's fascinating if you look up things about uh, St. Valentine, you'll find out that there were a couple people, there's maybe some uh, wonder about who really was the real Valentine. So I think there was probably a song about that with the real Valentine, please stand up. You know, that's probably a thing that they were asking. Uh, but there was at least in some capacity, some kind of Valentine that people began to connect with this thing that we call Valentine's Day. Now, if you search up Valentine, and you can do this today, it's fine. You can have your phone out if you want, and you search up Valentine, you will find that there is actually a skull of the priest that they consider Valentine at a basilica in Rome. And, and I looked this up, and I, and I thought, man, you know, church decorating trends— have changed significantly over the years. I mean, you hear people fighting over carpet and chairs, and you know, maybe you're not, maybe you're not in the, didn't grow up in the church world, so you never experienced this kind of thing. But, but I, I just to let you know, people in churches have fought over carpet color before, or chair color, things like that. But can you imagine the people that walk into this basilica, and and somebody walks in with a skull of a dead priest, and they're like, "Where do you guys want to put it?" And I just have to imagine that somebody was like, you know, Jane, I don't think that's a great idea. And then she's like, you know where I'm going to put this? Right up front. And that's exactly where this skull sits. It's surrounded by flowers. It has a little crown on it. Again, you can look this up. It's kind of creepy, actually. I think Gabe is looking it up. It's super, super creepy. Um, but this was, this was this guy that they called St. Valentine. And so the question that I asked myself was, well, how, how in the world did a martyr priest... A, a, a priest who served persecuted Christians in Rome become the patron saint of love. How, how did this take place? How did a guy whose skull is on display in a basilica become someone that we say, that we actually write, you know, we write, you know, dear so-and-so, you know, I love you so much, your Valentine, right? We go, as we know the story now, we go, that's weird. Like, that is really kind of awkward. Well, the legend goes, and hold on to this word legend this morning. The legend goes that the emperor of Rome at the time, a guy whose name was Claudius the Cruel, was having a hard time building an army because of the commitment that potential soldiers had to their families and to their spouses. Now, first of all, the first thing that I think about this is Claudius the Cruel. I thought to myself, you know, wouldn't the world be a lot cooler if we had names like that? Wouldn't it be a lot cooler if you were like, who's your pastor? Ryan the Ridiculous. <laughs> like, I think, right? Like, I think that would be super cool. And like, you could be like, Matt's a drummer, right? You could be like, that is Matt, the metronome, right? And people did this all throughout like music, right? If you, if you, like, if you like watch Blues Brothers, we watch Blues Brothers with Emily, and like they all have crazy names, right? Uh, something guitar, something or other, I forget. What is it? Yeah, Mad Guitar Murphy, right? And like all these guys that have these cool names, like I think we should do this, right? Like I, I like it. So from now on, if you want to introduce me, don't call me Pastor Ryan. I, that's, I don't like it. Just call me Ryan the Ridiculous and we'll, we'll just be just fine. So keep it PG, but whatever helps. So this guy is Claudius the Cruel. Now these guys, again, these guys that, that, that he's trying to recruit in the army, they don't want to go out to war. They, they have this commitment to their spouses. They have commitment to family. 
And so Claudius does the most incredible thing. He actually banned marriage. Again, this is how the legend goes. The Claudius the Cruel is like, I need these people in my army. I need these single men. They're too committed to these families. You know, they've, they've fallen in love with these people, and, and I need to build an army, so he bans marriage. Well, apparently this priest named Valentine saw the injustice in this decree, outlawing marriage for those who desired a relationship of commitment, and he started to marry people in secret. And then this protest of love was discovered, and Claudius ordered Valentine dragged to the gates where he was beaten, and then he was beheaded, which is why his skull can sit free from his body. He was beaten, and he was beheaded on February 14th. And then it is thought that this legend led to eventually the English poet Geoffrey Chaucer to eventually popularize this connection of love to the day that we call Valentine's Day. So a day that was meant to commemorate a priest who was condemned to a brutal death was then forever associated with the experience of love. Isn't that crazy? The, the idea that this guy who, said, who looks around, he sees Claudius the Cruel saying, hey, nobody can marry anybody more because I need some soldiers. And Valentine's sitting back and he's like, that's not fair. These people just want to marry. They're committed to each other. And he says, and he marries them, and then it's too late, and then, you know, Claudius is sitting there going, wait a second, what's going, where are all my soldiers? And somebody's like, well, that Valentine guy, he's, he's marrying all these people, he's taking all your soldiers away. Claudius the Cruel, which apparently, this must be where he got his name, looks and says, well, I can't have people marrying each other, that's a real problem. Probably not thinking through the ramifications, he's not going to have much of a country anymore if he doesn't let people marry and have kids anymore, right? He says, well, let's get rid of them because I need soldiers, I need to start wars. He says, you know, is this true? And, you know, I kind of imagine what's happening here. Again, this is legend. We could play with it a little bit. I imagine Valentine's like, of course it's true. Because I believe in love, right? I mean, I, I think he just, you know, really gets into it. He's, maybe he's got like a CD player and he's like holding it up. It's got Marvin Gaye. And he's like, Claudius, you know. He says, no, none of that. Somebody shoots an arrow, shoots that CD player off his head. He says, take that guy, behead him, get rid of him. This is amazing. Again, a story, a day meant to commemorate a priest condemned to brutal death, forever associated with love. Maybe you'll never look at Valentine's Day the same again. But here's what I found fascinating this week. Valentine's Day this week shared the same date as another important date on our calendar we call Ash Wednesday. Ash Wednesday is the beginning of the season of Lent. So we have been walking through these different seasons. We, we started by walking through the season of Advent. I talked about that Advent was those weeks that led us to the season of Christmas. We talked about Advent being the hope, the expectation of the Messiah to come, that people were waiting for this Messiah. So we jumped into these stories. We experienced what it was like to walk with them, thinking about hope and thinking about the tension of, of that waiting for this Messiah to come. Then we kept on walking with them through the celebration of Christmas. And because we took our time through the experience of hope, we got to Christmas and we can really celebrate that this Messiah has come 
And, and we wrestled with the idea, well, what is the Messiah and who is the Savior and why is, why is the Savior born as a baby in a manger to this poor family and, and what's going on with all of that? And we travel through that story and we, we ask all these questions. We see all these incredible things. We get through Christmas and then it brought us to the season of Epiphany. And Epiphany began with the story of these three magi who come from far away to come and to worship this king. And we begin to see in that story that the good news was good news for all people and we began to celebrate and see this incredible reality that this story of hope that started with this small group of people became this huge story for the entire world. Good news for all people. And so you have to celebrate that. You have to go, well, what does that mean? And how does that work out? And, and how did people deal with that? And what is good news? If it's good news for all people, what is good news? How, how, what do we do with that? Who is this Jesus? And, and what is he coming to do? And why is so, everybody so excited that he is here? And so these last few weeks, we got to take this slow journey through this story that we, or this season that we called Epiphany, which is just this understanding that all of these people had this experience where they were like, this is good news. All these light bulb moments, these epiphany moments of recognizing this is the person who is bringing good news into this world that is going to change everything. And we got to follow his, uh, his followers, uh, the, the initial followers that he had, as he said, come with me, come experience good news, come see good news, come see how all of this is going to play out. You know, we read these stories about these guys dropping their nets, and they're like, yes, I want to follow this guy, I'll do anything to follow him. And we see our own story through that. And this is what I think is so cool. If we engage the stories, we find ourselves in the stories, and we begin to walk with these people as they're experiencing all of this, experiencing the hope of Advent, the celebration of Christmas, the questions that we ask, the, the incredible reality of Epiphany, seeing that, man, it is good news for all people. And if it's good news for all people, man, maybe that means it can be good news for me too. You know, that's what I think we see in the story of these fishermen who follow Jesus. As Jesus is looking at them and saying, come and follow me, come see good news. I mean, why would they drop everything? Why would I drop everything? Why would I say, I, it's not worth it for me to live my life for myself anymore. I want to live my life for Jesus. Why would I make a crazy decision like that? And so we ask ourselves, this must be really good news, right? We discovered it is really good news. We discovered that through Jesus, the grace and the mercy and the love of Jesus is coming into this world. And we are being asked to participate in that reality, that Jesus comes into this world, he walks around, he says, this is what grace looks like. This is what mercy, and this is what love looks like. And I think it's amazing because, you know, if you ask people, what, what do you think about Jesus? Most people say, man, yeah, you know, I, 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 Jesus seems great. The way he loved and the way he cared, the compassion he showed, the grace that he had, just the, the, the vision of the world that he had. You say, yeah, that's, that's why I chose to follow him. Because he says, you can be a part of this reality that Jesus is pointing out that this world can look different than you could ever possibly imagine. He says, come with me and experience and see that. And so we began to experience that through the epiphany. And the story, honestly, in epiphany is so exciting, full of hope and full, full of all of this joy. And then on Ash Wednesday, something strange happens. We turn a corner and we begin to focus in on Jesus' death. We begin to focus on how this world that initially we see was so excited about the story of Jesus, that was so excited about the good news that he was bringing, how all of a sudden, just in this very short amount of time, turns on Jesus. 
and looks at Jesus and says, well, all of that hope that you're bringing into this world, all of this grace and all of this mercy, all of this stuff that you say you want to bring into this world, they just stop and they say, no, we don't want it. We don't believe you anymore. We don't want what you're doing. We, we, we see you as a threat to all of this. And so they decide to turn the story into a story of rejection, into a story of death. So starting on Ash Wednesday last week, we begin this journey of following Jesus to his brutal death on a cross. And I just want you to think about that. Like, I just want you to imagine us walking through these stories, taking our time. It's so easy, again, to rush to Christmas, to rush to Easter, because we know those stories. We know the celebration of Christmas. We love the celebration of Easter. But walking on a 40-day slow journey, navigating and, and, and processing and thinking about death, that's not super appealing to a lot of people. But there's something in the Christian faith that says, walk into a story of death so that you can experience the reality of new life. And this is the story of Jesus. This is the story of, of all of us. This is the invitation. Come and experience death to come and experience resurrection and new life. And so we have to slow down through this and begin to process, navigate, what, is, what does this death mean of Jesus? How, how does a, a brutal death like this fit into a larger story? I, I mean, we look at it and we say, how, how does the cross fit into any of this? And what am I supposed to do with that? And how do, how do I make sense of all of that? And one of the things that we can do, one of the ways that we can begin to ask questions about it is asking what kind of story are we reading? And so sometimes, you know, we look at this and we're, we're reading a story of, of conflict. We, we see Jesus uh, bringing into this world a certain kind of message, a certain kind of way of being. And so we see conflict taking place between people. You know, we see a story where his teaching is accepted and then his teaching is rejection. So we're seeing this sort of story of rejection taking place. But ultimately, as we dig into the story, as we get deep into it, we see that this is a story of God's love. And so then we have to, again, start asking more questions. How is God's love represented by a cross? How is God's love represented by death? Now, we've already seen that that's possible. Somehow, in the story of St. Valentine, we saw that love can be mixed up with death. That somehow love can be mixed up with sacrifice. That somehow love can be mixed up in this way. And we can begin to have a completely different imagination as we begin to tell the story in a way that helps us to see the power behind it, right? Because as you hear that story and you look at Valentine and you go, oh, I see. He, he gave up himself because he said, I, I see the injustice taking place here and I want to bring love into this world. And, and so I'm willing to fight for that. And I'm willing to give my life for that how much more powerful it is than we read a story of a Savior who comes. And he says, this is a story of love. And that this story is so based on love, trying to bring you into a place of new life, that he is willing to go so far as to give his life so that we could experience that. Now, there are words that we find, um, very familiar words in John 3, 16 through 17, that um, they really inspire our imaginations about this love. And I, I wanted to begin right here. 
It says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. He goes on, he says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So we find all these different gospel writers talking about why did Jesus come? We follow Mark through this idea of Jesus came to bring his kingdom into this world. We look at the gospel of Matthew that that says a very similar thing, that he came to bring the kingdom of heaven, as he talks about it, into this world. Like these are the purposes as they're trying to explain this to people. John is really different. John doesn't start with Jesus's birth. John kind of starts with an idea. John is focused on who is Jesus, and he's answering it by saying, well, he, he, is, he is this love of God represented in this person of Jesus. And he says, for God so loved the world. He so loved it so much that he would send his son. And whoever believes in him wouldn't perish, wouldn't experience death, but would experience eternal Life. Now, I won't get all into this, but we've talked about this here, that he's not talking about someplace you go. He's talking about eternal life in the here and now, that the grace and the mercy and the goodness of God can become a part of this life, that you may experience what is eternal today. That's what John is getting to, that he so loved the world that he would give his son to show you how to experience that in the here and now. And then he goes on and he says, because he didn't come to condemn it, He didn't come to condemn you or you or anybody. He came to save you from the death that comes in this world. The pain and the suffering and the ugliness and the hatred and the racism and the greed. He said, I have come to save you from all of that because that is what human nature has begun to lead us to. But you can be saved to a different kind of life. And this is what God, Jesus killed because he said, I have come to show you a life where instead of hating your enemies, you can come and love your enemies. I'm going to save you from the death that comes when you hate your enemies and instead you love your enemies. I am going to save you from the death that comes when life is focused all on yourself and you get to the end of your life and you realize, what did I live for? Nothing. I'm going to save you to a life of gratitude and generosity where you see your life had purpose and impact and difference in this world. Jesus came not to condemn you, but to save you. Yesterday, Derek and I were walking, my friend Derek and I were walking, and all the all-star stuff last night, we're walking down Georgia Street. We're getting ready to go into the convention center, and this guy is standing on the corner, and he was a street preacher. And he's talking, you know, and he's up there, and he's yelling at people, and he's using all those big $5 words, calling people fornicators and all kinds of things like this, you know, which I'm always like, you know, nobody's listening to you, man. They're just hearing the ridiculous words you're using. You know, and he's, he's yelling at people, and Derek's like, do you ever, like, do you ever want to get in, like, a three-point stance and, like, just take someone out when they're doing that? And I said, man, I got to be honest with you. I really do. I said, I want to tell these people, man, you don't know how hard you are making my job because you are telling everybody that Jesus came to condemn everybody. When the scriptures don't even say that, it says that he came to save everybody. And if you would do your job, you would tell people about the goodness and the life found in Jesus instead of yelling all this nonsense at everybody. I didn't do that because we went inside and I felt like I didn't want to get arrested that day for doing that. I wouldn't encourage you to get arrested for knocking somebody out who's teaching a gospel like that. But that is a false gospel, a gospel of condemnation that that leads us to judge and hate other people is a false gospel. Good news, good, true, good news leads us to a place of love because that's who Jesus is. 
Now, we could stop here, but to fully understand why this text is so powerful, why it is so meaningful that John tells us something like this, for God so loved the world that he gave his son. To understand why this is so, so incredible, so powerful, such a huge moment in time. I just want you to see this as like a huge moment that just sort of splits everything, that just sort of is this, this, this verse is important to us, but I want you to see it as this verse that just absolutely changes everything. To understand the power of this verse, to understand why this idea is so powerful, I want us to back up And I want us to back up to one of the earliest stories that was ever told about God. Because in this story, we're going to discover why the idea of God's love for this world found in Jesus is so powerful. We're going to see why God's love on display on a cross changes everything about our understandings. We have to start earlier. To do that, we're going to go to one of the earliest God stories ever told found in the book of Genesis. Listen to this. It says, this is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among his people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Curl. No, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. I want you to remember this. This is key. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. It was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood, make rooms in it, coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you're to build it. The ark is to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, 30 cubits high. Make a roof for it, leaving below the roof an opening one cubit high all around. Put a door in the side of the ark, make lower, middle, and upper decks, and I am going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens, every creature that has the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish. Now, Stories like this that we find from Genesis 1 up to Genesis 11 are what scholars of the ancient Near East literature call foundation myths. Now, for some people, a story about animals walking to the Middle East to get on a boat can seem a little jarring to our modern senses. Now, this is ironic because I saw a meme this week that was if you don't believe that penguins walk from Antarctica to the Middle East to get on a 500-year-old man, man's boat, you're fine. That's okay. You are allowed to discover that there is tension in this story. I get that. But I also want to recognize that the word myth can be very, very jarring to people who grew up in church. And I want you to know, I get that too. Okay, so don't make a run for the exit. If you're like, Ryan's talking about the story of Noah, I think that sounds like a ridiculous story. I don't know. And don't get upset with Ryan if he says, well, this is what they call a foundation myth. 
And you say you're attacking the stories that I grew up with in church because I get that too. I did too. What I'm asking you to do is join me in recognizing the literature that we are reading. We are all going to have to get a little uncomfortable with this story today because missing the point of the story is way worse than feeling a bit uncomfortable. Does that make sense? And I promise you, wherever you sit on this story, if you lean in with me this morning, it's going to pay off. It's going to be worth it, right? And I always say this. Don't lean out of the tension that you experience when you're looking at scriptures. Lean in to it, okay? So we are looking at this, again, what people call a foundation story. So why do these scholars call something a foundation myth or a foundation story? And why, and why are scholars looking at this, and, and why are they looking at all of this literature that they find and saying things like this? Well, the interesting thing about it is that foundation myths are found throughout cultures all around the world. All around the Middle East, all around the ancient world, all around our world are these similar stories. Many of them overlap. Stories about creation, stories about floods, stories about destruction. And it's important for us to talk about this because we are raising a generation who has more knowledge available to them than ever before. They are discovering where some of us discovered much later that, wow, there are similar stories like this that exist that we find in the Bible. And so what I want to do is I want to help our students and I want to help all of us to recognize that you are going to find similar stories. All you have to do is Google the word flood myths. I couldn't do that when I was a kid. I just went to church and there was a nice poster board that people put pictures of animals and boats on and we just told the story. But the difference today is we have, the, we have this inc incredible amount of knowledge before us. So the first question is, what do we do with that? What are, what, how do we understand now what was happening in the ancient world? And why are all of these stories there? Now, the first thing we recognize when we read some of these scholars is that the focus of the stories was not on the literalness of the story, but telling them about the God that they followed. So the first thing we see is regardless of the story, whether it's the story of Noah, whether it's the story of Gilgamesh, whether it's the story, you, you can literally just look up flood myths on Wikipedia and there's a huge list. They are functionally doing the same thing. Creation stories. Again, Adam and Eve, there are different creation stories. There's stories about uh, the world being born on the back of a turtle. These are foundation myths for these cultures. And the point was not, was the earth born on the back of a turtle? The question that these people were asking was, how do I relate to the God who created all of this? What do I do with my experience of things that I do not understand? And what does that mean for this God and my relationship to him? And again, this was important. The ancient world was a polytheistic world. Everyone had their own God. So people are sitting around going, well, what's so special about your God? And guys, this is no different than living in a postmodern world. When you say, I follow Jesus, everybody says, what, what's so special about Jesus? And I'm not saying that we're, we're asking ourselves to compare ourselves to other gods. I'm saying that we all have a tendency to make ourselves our own God. And somebody's going to say, well, I enjoy following myself. Why would I follow Jesus? And this is what's happening here. Why, 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 what is it about your God that's so special? And so to answer that question, people told stories. 
it was today, they'd write movies. But instead, they wrote stories. And this story tells us something interesting. It says, the world is overcome with sin. So this origin story says, okay, so the world is overcome with sin. Translated as full of violence. We dig a little bit deeper into that full of violence understanding. We see this. People on earth had stopped doing what God had wanted them to do. That this God had wanted them to partner with God, with each other, to care for this world, to to make this place a, a, a world of beauty. Instead, they used the tools that they had available to care for the world, and they turned them on each other. So we have a world where people were creating enemies of each other, using resources of God to kill instead of care. And everyone, according to the author, was like this. Everyone was full of violence. Everyone was full of these destructive things, except for one dude. And he said, and this dude's name was Noah. For Noah, this author tells us, this guy was righteous. He was blameless. He walked faithfully with God. Now, if that sounds familiar, it's because it, it, it echoes a verse that we read last week that shows up later on in Scripture. Listen to this. This is fascinating. Micah 6, 8, much later in the Scripture, says, He has shown you, a mortal, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. Awesome. One of these awesome threads. It's sort of like Micah's going... You guys remember Noah? Be like Noah. Remember the story of Noah that we used to tell around the campfires? Go be like Noah. That's what God wants of you. Again, remember, these are people that didn't have a giant Bible. They they didn't have their grandma's Bible that sits on their tables. They didn't have this. They had stories that were told to each other about who God was. They had the prophets that they would listen to who said, this is the kind of people that you're supposed to be. This is how we relate to our God. So this is what they would tell, these stories. So this description of Noah, he's righteous, he's blameless, he walked faithfully. And here's what's cool about that. Right away, if we know the other, again, We have to be comfortable recognizing that there are other flood stories. Because in those flood stories, they don't start out with a guy who is righteous, blameless, and walks faithfully with God. In the ancient world, people had different relationships with God. Sometimes these relationships would have been animosity. Sometimes in their stories about their creation myths or their flood myths, they were stories of indifference. The gods did not care. All you have to do is look at Greco-Roman stories to understand that the gods had an indifference. They they had an animosity towards people. They they just didn't, it, it wasn't on their radar to walk with these people. So this phrase, walking faithfully with God, is about an intimacy. This is a God that you can know. This is a God that you can walk with. And this is so cool because we see this in another one of these foundation stories. It says that God walked in the garden in the cool of the day. I had a professor in seminary who was like, so does that mean God had a body? I was like, oh, I don't know. That's, that's kind of weird to think about. He's like, well, what's, what are they trying to say? Well, they're trying to say there was an intimacy. You could take a walk with this God. You can know this God. Can you imagine the people sitting around the fire? You mean I can know God? I can have a relationship with God? Later on, Jesus shows up and he starts walking around and they make this realization that this is God. 
I can, I can know this Jesus. I can walk with this Jesus. I can experience him in my life. This changes everything. So the people listening, man, they're, they're already hearing. This is a different kind of story. Now, as we go on, I want to do this real quick. I want you to do the best you can to imagine. I know some people have better imaginations. Than that, but I want you to imagine. I want you to kind of imagine as we go now from here, sitting at this fire. People are telling stories about their gods. And you're sitting together with all of these different people. And, and I, you just imagine the storyteller. And he's like, can I go next? Yeah, you go. And he's like, well, there was this guy. And the world was a mess. Absolute mess. Everybody hated each other. Nobody got along. They were split into political part. I don't know that that part's true. They just, they, they couldn't get along. They, they could not do what was right because they were so angry all the time. And it was a mess. God said, this isn't the way I wanted the world to be. I wanted a world full of grace and mercy. I wanted a world of people where they cared for this creation, where they showed the kind of love that I have for them. Look what they've done. They've made it a huge mess. Except for that dude over there, Noah. So that guy, he's walking with God. He's faithful. He cares. All the people, man, you're on the edge of your seat. You're sitting at this fire and you're going, no. Because you've never heard about a God like this before. This is new. This is news. Well, then the storyteller, before they get any further, somebody's like, there can't be a God like that. I know these stories. These gods always make destruction. They always do stuff, right? He's like, all right, well, let's keep going and I'll, I'll show you. So he takes them back to a familiar refrain that they had heard in these other stories. He says, for 40 days, the flood kept coming on the earth. And as the waters increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth. The waters rose and increased greatly on the earth. And the ark floated on the surface of the water. They rose greatly on the earth and all the high mountains under the high heavens were covered. He says, every living thing that moved on land perished. Birds and livestock, wild animals, all the creatures that swarm over the earth. Oh, and by the way, and all evil mankind along with them. Now, it's okay when you read a story like this today to be like, I feel a little tension in this. I mean, we love the part about the animals and the ark. We paint Sunday school rooms with them. My daughter's got a Noah's Ark blanket. But you know, when we tell the story, I'm not like, don't you love this story about all these people dying under those waters? We just don't do that, guys, because that's the part that we get uncomfortable with. It doesn't feel like the God that we know. There's a tension there, and that is okay to feel. And do you know why that's okay to feel? Because that's the very same tension that the people felt when they were hearing this story. The tension they had, the questions they had, that are posed in your mind, this is how the ancient people felt when they heard the story. This is a good story, because good stories lead to tension. And now they're looking and they're going, how is this going to resolve? I thought this was a God that loved all these people. What's going to happen next? What am I going to do with this? Remember what I said earlier. Every ancient culture had foundation stories. And in that lexicon, every culture had flood stories. And the question now becomes then, how does this God solve the tension that I'm feeling? Now, here's what's interesting. In the other stories circulating around the ancient world, the gods were angry. Everybody died, and the story ended that the God was satisfied by the destruction, and the story would end. The God would say, I smited you, you're gone, I can, it, finally it's quiet, 
and I can move on with my life. But this God does something so different. Again, imagine you're sitting around a fire. The story seems to end. Everyone claps. Oh, the God killed everybody. Right? Who's next? And the guy looks at everybody sitting around the fire. He looks at you and he goes, oh, no, 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 no. Don't move to Tim yet. I got the floor. And he says, let me tell you the rest of the story. So he goes on and he says these words. But God remembered Noah. The guy who was sort of listening, he's eating his can of beans in the back. He hears, but God remembered Noah. He literally falls off his, his rock that he's sitting on. He lands in the He's like, what? Who, he did what? He says, and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark. And he remembered all of them. And he sent a wind over the earth and the waters receded. And the guy in the back who's eating his beans, they're spilled all over his shirt. Now he sits up and he's like, where's this going? And he's super stoked and he's excited. He wants to find out, who is this God? What's happening in the story? Then the guy goes on and he says, then God said to Noah and his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and your descendants after you. And with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth, I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all of life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And I love the storyteller that he repeats that. He's like, never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. Never again will there be a flood? And I just think the guy is like sitting around the fire. Maybe you feel the same way. You're like, wait, did he say that out loud? He's like, yeah, let me repeat it for those in the back. And then we begin, as we see this, to see what is happening here. What is he trying to, this is what I'm always telling us, guys. We have to ask as we're investigating these stories, especially in the short time we have together on a Sunday morning, What are they trying to teach us about a relationship with God? Maybe you're the person in the back who you had never, you thought God is destructive, God is hateful, God is just trying to condemn me. God is everything that that guy standing on the side of the street was talking about. And then it says, but God remembered Noah. God remembered Cheryl. God remembered Matt. You fall out of your chair and your beans are all over you, your coffee, whatever it is. And you're like, maybe there's hope. Maybe something is going on different in this story. Maybe, maybe, like Hamilton, Ryan's going to stand up and tell that guy, Let, get off your box, let me talk for a minute. Maybe there's some good news that's about to happen here, and that's exactly what we begin to see. Again, remember, guys, this is an ancient story. This is one of the, one of the, most, the, one of the first God stories that was ever told. And so it mirrors. They were breathing the same air as the ancient people around them. So we see similarities, but we also see these differences that are so huge that help us understand what they were trying to tell us about their God. And here's what they tell us. God was heartbroken. God was heartbroken by the way that people had treated each other, the way that they treated his creation. And nobody had ever talked about a God like this before. Look at these stories, and nobody had ever said, well, this was a heartbroken God. This was a sad God. This was a God who cared and who loved. God was so sad with the actions of humanity that he was sad enough to destroy them. People had heard that before, but they hadn't heard this. 
that God was also saddened by the destruction that the flood had caused. Who was this God? The people around the fire would have asked, this God isn't satisfied by destruction. He's not satisfied by death. He isn't satisfied by sacrifice. This God is a covenant God. He uses that word. Who wants to work in and through this creation. This creation that was so screwed up that they couldn't even do what he wanted them to do. And he says, I, I, I want to work with them. I want them to bring about a different kind of world. It's so fascinating because this is almost a God who shows some kind of regret. This isn't how I wanted things to be. There has to be a different kind of way. Think about those words that we read in Micah again. Listen, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And so the people had heard the story. They heard that there was a different kind of way to be. We read in the rest of the stories how they began to try to live this out, to, to be the kind of people that God wanted them to be in this world. We read more of these stories about that experience. But what we discover is the world continues to fall out of alignment with what God wanted. Some people would use that the, wor the world had become fallen, that the world had become sinful, and we see that that had just continued, that the flood didn't solve that. It was just a part of human nature over and over again. This was it. But as we saw in the story of Noah and as we see throughout the scriptures, this continued to break God's heart. God's heart continued to be broken because the world was not the way that God wanted the world to be. So what was God to do? God had already made this promise. He said, this isn't going to happen again. This God that they're telling these stories about, that's not the God who we follow Maybe there's a different kind of thing here. Maybe this God is going to do a new kind of thing. Maybe this God is going to do something we could have never expected or imagined. And out of that, a hope begins to come. That this God is going to do a new thing. Instead of sending destruction, what many thought God would do, maybe God would do something so shocking in response to our sin that people would turn, that they would follow, and that they would live a new kind of way. And what is God's response to this world that continues to be out of alignment, continues to be a world of sin? What is God's response to that? He sent his son. He sent his son. God sent his son for God so loved the world, that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And then so we wouldn't misunderstand what was happening here, so we wouldn't get this wrong. He goes on and he says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. This is incredible. I mean, to think about the tension, again, that we find in Scripture. The point of these stories is to make us ask questions, to make us find tension there, and to see that this is a different kind of God, that this is not the God of the guy who sits on the corner and looks at you and says, you are condemned. 
and the floodwaters are rising and you have no hope, this is a God on the other side of the corner telling a different story that said this is a God who loved you so, so, so much that he took on that humanity that seems so sinful and so broken and so hurt and so full of suffering. He took the chance to come and be with a world full of people who we look back and we see had killed grace and mercy and love in this world. A, a, a world that was so ugly and so just, just, it just saddened God to no end. He says, okay, I'll take a chance. I will, I will go and be in that world. And I will walk with them and I will show them a new way to be. And here's the saddest part of it. The world rejected. Rejected him. And so in these 40 days of Lent, we begin to walk this story to say, why, why would I reject a God who looks different than anything I had ever imagined? Why would we as a people who hear this good news story of love and grace and mercy be people who reject this? And then what does God do with that rejection? Well, maybe God will respond and he'll say, well, that's it. I did everything I could. I can't take it anymore. This world is done. Yet here we stand today. You and I, somehow here in this world today, because God chose a different path. He said, no, 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 death, destruction, all of that, that doesn't get the last word. No. Love, creation, new life will always spring up. How cool is that to think? So we get to go on this journey, a journey of a different kind of God, a God full of love, a story that we, I get, I get, we see it ends at the brutal death of Jesus on the cross. But as we look at that picture, as we see that, we also see God's love on display. Guys, as he stretched out his arms and he died. How, how does a story of love fit into a story that is so full of death and violence, this brutal reality? How does love fit into that? It does. At a cross. At an empty tomb. And that's why I can't, I can't stop reading the story. That's why I want to sit around at the fire and be like, did you hear this part? It's why I love to tell this story over and over again and why we should be people who want to tell this story because we can look and say, the world doesn't have to be like this. There is a different kind of God, a God of crosses and empty tombs who loves us so much that he would send Jesus to walk and to live with us, to die for us. Man, let's wrestle with that story of love and let's see how it changes our hearts and how that can change the world. God, we are just so thankful for these stories. God, again, I, I, I just pause and I think about that, you know, we, we have to stop long enough to feel the tension, to recognize that there is something taking place in this story 
pulling us in, causing us to see that something can be different here, to feel the tension in all of us. As we do that, to see your love and your mercy in new ways. To see the kind of God that you are and to see your incredible love on display. Father, we thank you for this word that you bring us today. It's your name that we pray. Amen.